In this episode of Boss Files. Every day was a struggle, but uh, I enjoy those challenges, you know, because when, I guess when you've had nothing and you started with nothing, then what do you have to lose? You know, so you take the risk and you keep trying. How a fruit bouquet made Edible Arrangements founder Tariq Fareed a multi-millionaire. He came to the United States from Pakistan at just 13 years old, cleaned bathrooms at McDonald's, and then a $6,000 loan to open a flower shop changed everything. Investors thought his idea would fail, but he knew it wouldn't. Why he says coming to America was the greatest gift. We're a diverse country, and if we're looking at immigrants, the contribution has been amazing both ways. I don't think any immigrant, my parents never forgot it. They still, my father makes sure I still don't forget what this country has done for us. And I think, um, look at the greatness mm. of the country. Where you know, and uh, and from there, um, let's let's lead. Uh, you know, because the world is changing. His message to President Trump, immigrants are key to America's economic growth. Plus, his proudest moment today, having his daughter work by his side. Here's my conversation with Tariq Fareed. Tariq, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You have said, I have no doubt my family and I would still be struggling if we stayed in Pakistan. Coming to America was the greatest gift ever given to me. What has America given you as you look back? Um, you know, everything, you know. So I think when it started out, um, my mom, I remember a moment when I was 13 years old and we, got, we arrived and my mother was here for about three, four months and she said something. She said, my life has now begun. Oh. And, um, and because uh, my great-grandfather was, came to the U.S., um, back as a laborer, you know, mm-hmm. so they, they were recruit people from India, farmers to come, and he worked in Sacramento, and there was stories in the family about America, you know, and, um, and, and then my mother and her family, they lost everything in the partition of India and Pakistan, and uh, they ended up in a refugee camp, and when she came here, she kind of would tell us these stories, and she thought it was freedom for her, and I think, uh, now, we didn't know anything, I was 12 or 13 years old, um, but, you know, what she was talking about slowly because now she was in control she can inspire her kids she can do a lot of things that she heard about in the family that what the family had done and uh, I think um, it it started from that and and then all the people that I met along the way everybody wanted me to do better Mm. everybody wanted to encourage and I mostly remember those people and I always uh, share those stories Um, and I think um, if it wasn't for those inspirations, if it wasn't for the environment, if it wasn't for how easy it is to do stuff, and you know, some it seems business is very difficult. But then, uh, you know, I can at 16 or 15, I can walk into the secretary of the state office and register a company, yeah, and they actually help you. <laughs> that that doesn't happen. That's in, America. That most people don't you, realize that doesn't happen in other countries. You're a multimillionaire now, but you have said McDonald's was the best job I ever had. It was. Okay, make the case. That's hard for me to believe because. I worked at a gas station. That was not the best job I've well, ever Well, you didn't had. work at McDonald's. You okay, know? So, fair. Uh, <laughs> so uh, because they had systems, and I always loved to excel. And where there are systems, you can excel. So when you went in, they kind of gave you training. Uh, you know, so I started out by watching a video, and you were cleaning the bathrooms. You were clearing, uh, cleaning the reception area. But you knew what the next stage was. 
And so I learned most of the systems from there. And then when I wanted to franchise my company, I remembered all those things at 16, mm. 17, 18. And I remembered their operations manuals. I remembered their you know, scheduling. And they, they got you involved in everything. You know, they, you know they, they expected a lot. Not expected a lot. They're trained 17-year-olds to do great, a great stuff. A great training ground. Yeah. You and your parents came to the United States from Pakistan. You had no money. Five, five kids. You were 12. What was that like for you? Um, because I remember stories about my, my husband immigrating to, to America when he, was, when he was the same age, when he was five years old, coming from Bosnia. And I remember those stories and those memories of flying into JFK. What, what pops up in your mind? Just, I, I think just the environment. I mean, it's, it's very different. You know? So I haven't forgotten the first time we got off and we got on a Connecticut limousine bus. Mm. Uh, it's six kids. So it was five okay. brothers and one sister. And we get off. I'm, I'm the oldest. And the first thing you see is just this totally different environment. I remember, and what I remember are the hubcaps on the bus, you know, the uh, wheels and everything. Yeah. And then just, uh, just you know, getting on a bus and, it, and it just getting into a totally different environment. And, uh, and I have never forgotten that. I still do share that with my kids. And we were just on this weekend. We went and traced the route that my mother used to walk to the grocery store. Because I, I, every year, every two years, I take my kids back and say, this is where your grandmother used to walk two and a half hours to get groceries. And you're one of six kids. Yeah. Now you have six kids who have so much privilege because of your success, but you want them to remember exactly where you came from and the circumstance your country began, right. your, your family began in, in this country. That's right. Your dad worked the night shift at Burger King on top of his other jobs just to make extra money. You would join him, bring as much money home for your family as you could, and, and money was tight. There's this moment you talk about when you were at the store and you, your family couldn't afford mangoes. I mean, they're, yeah. they're, they're expensive here, right? But that was something you had in, in plenty yeah. in Pakistan. So um, um, it, we, fruit was never an issue. My, my family was well-to-do from standard in, in Pakistan. I mean, they were farmers, so my father was always very generous. At the end of the night, everybody sat around, and the last thing you did was you ate fruit. You know, that was dessert, you know, if you want to say. And I, we came here about a year, in, a year in or six months in. I'm not really sure of the time. My mother saw mangoes at a grocery store, and she tells my father that there are mangoes. I think they were a dollar each. Yeah. And my father They're says, more than that now. Yeah, my father says, no, put them back. They're too expensive. And, I, you know, as a 12 or 13-year-old, I realize at that point that things have changed. Yeah. And then you just start to help. Your neighbor, uh, you know, during your first years here in the United States, said, keep working this hard. You'll be a millionaire by the time you're 35. Yeah. Okay. It turned out to be pretty true, but did you believe him at the time? I, I didn't think about it, but I, I liked the ring of it, you know. <laughs> so uh, um, she was just she was just this amazingly generous lady that that you know she was one of those women that when it was snowing and you walk in, she would always bring you in the house, give you uh, something warm, and then she'd be like dusting the snow off of yeah. you as she's talking to you. And she just said something, but and I I never forgot that. Whenever I thought I was working too hard and not making it, or or it's not going to work, I always remembered what she said, and you just double down on it, and it worked. I mean, you know, her prediction worked. You talked about walking into you know uh, the government offices to to open a business. You did. I mean, you start working at a flower shop, and you're just sort of trying to learn the ropes, trying to get it right. You're seeing how a, how a shop and how a business is run. And then eventually you guys pull together a few thousand bucks from family and friends, and you open your own. 
Tell me about that. So um, my father, I used to work at, when I was about 13, 14, I used to work at a flower shop and I always go there water plants. And it was, it was a way for Charlie Ferricelli, Ferricelli's Flowers in West Haven, to just help kids and keep them off the street. And just, he was just an amazing neighborhood business owner. And, it, you know, and uh, so worked for him. And my father thought, now, if you worked in a flower shop, you, we could probably own one. So he would always be looking in the newspaper for a business. And he saw uh, some, it, a, bus- it, a flower shop had gone out of business in East Haven, Connecticut, uh, Tyler Florist, uh, on sale for 6000 What they were actually, I think, were selling with the equipment and they were liquidating. Yeah. And, he's, you know, he, he, and, and he comes to me and he says, look, there's a flower shop for sale. And you just didn't say no. You said, okay, let's do it. And, you know, I, I, it's, I'm glad I didn't know much about business because if I knew a lot, I would have told them that I don't know much about it. Yeah. And we opened it and it was the money was actually loaned. And this is the amazing part. And this is the generosity that, that all this success is built on. Bill and Denise Holtberg, who was my father's boss, gave me the $6,000. Mm. Imagine somebody giving back then when an average salary may have been for a machinist $30,000, $35,000, giving $6,000 to a 17-year-old who says, I'm going to go take a business that's wow. shut down and I'm going to go and run it and I'll pay you back. Any conditions? No conditions. He said, oh, go for it. Here's 6000 What have you given them since? Uh, I, I, I make sure that I keep, you know, keep them in mind and, and take care of them whenever I can. And, and, a little bit and more than 6000 You paid them back, to say uh, the least. You have to. You know, they've, yeah. they've done a lot. You dropped out of college? I dropped out of college. Not useful? Uh, I was doing good in business. And this was, again, um, I had a, 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 an advisor and uh, he would say, you pay your tuition every time. You, you, you don't, uh, you miss classes. What's going on? <laughs> what are you paying for? Yeah, what are you paying for? And you don't get good grades. What's going on? And I sat down with him, his, uh, and his name is Michael. And I, I said, Michael, I'm doing really good in business. And he goes, what business are you in? And I said, well, I own flower shops. So he figured, you know, I own flower shops. How much could I be making? And I think that year I told him I, you know, the flower, I had two flower shops. I said, you know, on Saturdays I can't attend classes because there's always a wedding. On weekdays, if I get busy, uh, you know, I'm at the shop. And um, so he says, oh, how much could you be making? And I think I shared something with him about 150, 160,000 is what we cleared that year. And he said something like, well, I have a PhD and I made 40 some odd thousand. Go, go take care of your business. Don't worry about it. And that was kind of my permission at that point. And I'm not saying that, you know, I think kids should definitely go to school. It's just I was on a roll and yeah. he gave me the permission to say, go run your business. And I did. And, that, and if I didn't do that, I probably would have not grown the business And because I started an IT company right after that. So I suppose if your children came to you and said, we're not going to college, you would say... Uh, well, no, you're going to college. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, it, it all depends if they were doing something. If they were doing something that I saw that there was potential, then I may let them uh, balance it sure. a little bit. Sure, But, uh, I, you know, I, I think things are different, and the situation was different for me at that time. Fast forward, you, you start, uh, obviously, a company shortly thereafter. And then 1999, you start Edible Arrangements. This is, for anyone listening who doesn't know, but I think we all know at this point, this is fruit beautifully cut up some dipped in chocolate, et cetera, that looks like an arrangement of flowers. If you're 10 feet away, you don't know it's, it's fruit, you think it's flowers. No one thought you would succeed. No one except you. That's right. The customers told us they loved the product. Anytime you made it and you put it in front of the customers, they thought, it, they, they, when can I buy, or how can I buy more? And you know, can I get it for this holiday? 
But uh, everyone that I went to for advice or for money would tell me, why do you think it would work? And I told them, well, because customers are telling me they want to buy it. And I had a very successful computer company and a very successful flower business. And, you know, I think they were looking out for me. They're like, oh, you have a pretty successful uh, flower business. Why don't you, you know, stick to the flower business? And uh, so if I went to borrow money, they would tell me, we don't think it's going to work, so I'm sorry. You know, they, they would deny you. And uh, then my father bought in a friend of his who was a professor and, and who uh, he said, you know, he, he, he looks at it and he says, well, you have a pretty successful flower business. Have you done a focus group? And I hadn't even heard of a focus <laughs> group. And uh, I kept going back and forth of telling them how customers love it. And, I, you know, and, and my mother always thought that this business was going to do great. And I said, I did have a focus so group. So your mom, your mom agreed. Yeah. My mom, my mom was my first partner in when I did the flower shop. So I would drop her off in the morning and I would go off to high school. She would watch the shop and she didn't even speak English. She would just watch it and tell me what happened in, in the daytime and the, you know, so-and-so customer came in and this is what's happening. She learned how to arrange flowers. When she saw the flower, the fruit business I was doing, she thought it would be great. So I told them my focus group was I took an arrangement home, I put it on the dining room table. My mom looked at it and said, honey, this is going to be big. Moms know best. Moms know everything. Yeah, so listen to your mom. Did you stumble, though? I mean, now you're so successful. You've got, you know, over half a billion in annual revenue, 1,300 plus stores around the world. But the ride up couldn't have been easy. Oh, it's, it, every day was a struggle. Right? You know, uh, but uh, I enjoy those challenges, you know, because when I guess when you've had nothing and you started with nothing, then what do you have to lose? You know, so you take the risk and you keep trying. Uh, I've always had amazing partners, be it uh, the people that are on my team that work with me, and then also franchisees. You know, we're built here, and we're at the level we are because it was the franchisees who saw the same thing that I saw. So somebody from Boston would come and say, hey, hey I got one of these. It was a great reaction. I want to open one in Boston. Um, so it's always been uh, the people that you surround yourself with. So I've always been very blessed to have amazing people, be it my mom who sees it and says this is going to be big, uh, to the people in the flower shop who say, hey, we're going to start doing this, and we start making them. Where did you struggle so much that you thought it might not last? I remember sitting here not long ago with Jim, uh, Jim Cook, founder of Sam Adams, and he talked about this big recall they had. Yeah cost millions and millions of dollars. They thought, I mean, he thought at one point he could lose the company. Have you had one of those moments? Uh, you've had moments where you start to doubt yourself that could, you know, you have, uh, you know, and you see a potential and you struggle with it. You know, you struggle that could we really make it? Could I, could I grow it to that level? It's that, that part about where you, it's not really a doubt, but you start to get concerned that am I taking a risk, which is too big? Will, will this be the item that could kind of compromise the company? Um, but I've, I've, never really, um, I've never really worried about it. My mother used to have this one rule from the beginning that she taught me. She said, you know, uh, don't run after money. It runs really fast. Go do the right thing, and it'll always chase you. And I've never really worried about money. You know, when you see potential, you go after, you risk things. Uh, and it's always worked. Um, is it difficult? It's supposed to be difficult, you know, and, it, and it's supposed to be hard, but you, you know, you got to pull things together and, and get through it. I mean, we're going through a total revolution right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and is it difficult? Not every day is difficult, but at the same time, you see potential. More from my interview with Tariq Farid after the break. When the economy just crashed, just, yeah. just came to a halt in 2008, you really experienced your first sort of big business mm -hmm. failure. What was that? 
Uh, we had, you know, our first store closed in 2008. You know, we had, you know, from 1999 to 2008, no stores had ever just closed. Just growth. Yeah, just growth. And uh, that's when you started to see that some of the franchisees uh, were getting in financial, uh, uh, you know, hardship. And you started to see some stores closed. But at the same time, our best years were 2008, 9, and 10. Because uh, people look for value. Yeah, people were, well, people were looking for value. So if you're looking for value, this product is fruit. It looks like a flower arrangement, so you get that effect. And we had seen this in 1999 and 2000, that people said, well, I was thinking about sending something else, but they can at least eat it, you know, and (laughs) and it looks really good. And so from that value. You don't just have to throw it away when it wilts like a flower arrangement. And and I'm I'm a flower. I love flower arrangements. I think, you know, there are many, many places where you have to buy flowers. You know, you're not really going to walk down the altar with, uh, you know, with a fruit bouquet. Although I am sure someone has. (laughs) I am sure someone has. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it was a difficult time because everything was collapsing around you. And that's when all the franchisees came together and we launched our marketing campaign. Is it, the, is it true that because of your religious beliefs, you're a Muslim mm-hmm. American, because of your religious beliefs, you've had to finance the company's expansion through interest-free loans? Uh, I, I've never gotten any financing until now. So I've, I've always self-funded the company. So that I swear I read that somewhere. So you didn't have to get to start out any interest-free loans? Uh, well, there's no such thing as an interest-free loan. Well, I, think I suppose there is, get, which is, which is uh, a loon you just pay back as the yeah, amount. So the, 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 I tell you, the first interest-free loan was a loan my mother gave me. There you but, go. Uh, uh, but uh, beyond that, uh, we had no financing up, up to huh. about, uh, I would say, uh, a year and a half ago. And, uh, and why did you take it then? Uh, because I bought the company back from private equity. Why that decision? Uh, because I think there's a long way to go, and uh, uh, and I believe in the brand, and I got years left in me, and I, I feel I can grow it, and I have an amazing group of franchisees. We're just in the middle of a brand repositioning or rebranding. We're starting to carry a lot more product. There's a secondary meaning happening in the brand, and when you see this confidence, uh, I, mean, what, I mean, I'm not I'm not ready to slow down yet and and to sit back. So I figured uh, let's do it again. So it's it's sort of wave two for you guys, right? What, what? I, yeah, I call it edible 2.0. Okay, edible 2.0. I was yeah. close. Yeah. So what does that mean? Many more products. What? should we think of when we define edible arrangements a year from now? So the arrangement will be our signature, right? That will be our base, and it will always be our base. Gifting will always be our base. But we've started to do these treats where we have uh, fresh fruit smoothies, where we actually, we have tons of fruit, so we can cut the fruit in front of you. We can uh, make the smoothie. It's a fresh fruit experience. Uh, Dipped fruit, you know, dipping chocolate in the stores, where we, you know, we have amazing chocolate products. Uh, So it's that more that treat where our stores become a destination where people Ah. can walk in. Um, people are more and more last minute. So imagine walking into a store and within seven minutes getting an arrangement. We make it for Whereas you. Whereas otherwise you've had to order it in, in advance. That's right. So uh, you, you walk in and you can pick an arrangement and in seven to eight minutes it's ready and, and you walk out with uh, an arrangement because people are thinking on the way to mom's house, on the way sure. uh, to a trip to say, hey, we should get something. So, you know, or, that, or that, that my, revolution. Or when my husband tells me it's, it's his mother's birthday that day. That's right. That's right. So we'll <laughs> and deliver, I haven't ordered anything in And advance. we'll deliver with an hours. Your 24-year-old daughter yeah. works with you now in the company. I think your goal is, you know, could she lead one day? Maybe. Definitely. So Definitely. what's that like? I mean, that, that can't be easy for you or her, having her in the company and being treated the same as other employees. Uh, she does a great job. And, uh, you know, she has to 
fend for herself. You know, it's uh, we have a lot of amazing people, and she has to compete. Uh, but you know. Um, it's probably the proudest moment for me when when your daughter comes into the company and she can sit and she can hold her own in a meeting and uh, uh, win the team over. And uh, I'm not really known much for favoritism, and and I, I built it the hard way, and I want her to work it, and I want her to earn it, and she does, and she does a great job. She's very smart. I'm very very lucky uh, to have an amazing daughter, and uh, and and she's in the company. So it's a, it, it's it's it, you know, um, I'm. I am working on building and, and kind of passing the company on, and it's nice to be able to see that your oldest is going to be taking it one let's, day. Let's talk about uh, being a parent and a business leader right now in this environment as an, as an immigrant, as, as a Muslim-American immigrant right now. What is your reaction to, what is your sentiment about uh, the rhetoric in America right now when it comes to, to immigrants and, and specifically Muslim-American immigrants? Uh, you know, it, it's a challenging time to say the least, and, and I, I find myself, uh, I worry about my, you know, daughters and, and uh, my kids. Um, you're very, them. yeah, you're 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 very protective, and you want to make sure that uh, um, I. I enjoyed, uh, you know, I've never had any issues and never even thought about it. So I don't think a 13-year-old that comes to America is thinking that he's an immigrant. You know, you come, and, and especially when you run into people that only want to make you better and tell you, hey, kid, you're doing a great job. Keep going. You're going to be a millionaire by the time you're 36. You didn't face discrimination. Uh, well, you, you know, you hear people say stuff here and there, but it's no different than what you saw other Americans facing it. Mm. So, I, you know, a lot of my friends were African-American, and you would hear things and you would see things. Uh, I knew other immigrants from, you know, Poland and other places that would face similar things. So you didn't think much of it. You're like, look, you know, there are some, there are some, uh, you would rub it off as, you know, there are some mean people, you know, something like that. Um, but in the, the rhetoric is, it, it, it's a little bit of it, a little bit hurtful, you know, and that's the only thing. And Isn't I, it I, different now, do you think, Tariq? I mean, have we regressed in terms of our rhetoric since you were a kid coming up here? I, I think it was there. I, I just think, it has changed, you know, to other people. You know, back then, um, it, 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 there's always been an underlying. And, and, and look, I, for me to say it's only in America was, would be disingenuous. If I, if you go to Pakistan, that's where my family's from. You see it. You see it there as well. You see it in other countries. Uh, I think there is just this human nature sometimes that if you feed it, mm. or if you let it. Uh, uh, you know, come to the top that it, 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 it has a little ugly side. So I think you see a little bit of that. But I'm hoping as we have uh, uh, matured out of it before, we'll mature out of this as well. You wrote in a column in the New York Times, quote, Dear America, please remember how you got to be the wealthiest country in history. It wasn't through protectionism or state-owned banks or fearing free trade. Why did you write that? Oh, because... The things that I accomplished here, you know, if you're if you haven't traveled overseas and if you haven't traveled to some of these countries that we're seeing growing and see what they're what they're copying, they're copying things that they learned from America. They send their kids to this country to learn about how to do business, learn about how to treat each other, learn about how to take care of the customer, learn about rights for others, that that's what they're learning from and kind of building these great economies. We can't go backwards. Mm -hmm. We have to turn around. And my job is for what it, what this country gave me, for it, for me to leave it better, Something, for do my part. There was an impetus for you to write this, though, right? I mean, you don't, if everything was going swimmingly, yeah, yeah, you yeah. wouldn't have felt the need to write this. So why? 
Um, because you you see, um, we, we have a lot of immigrants uh, that are franchisees, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs that open our businesses, and you see them concerned. You see people concerned about what's happening, and you see this in other countries where certain minorities or certain people are discriminated against, and, yeah. and, 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 and you know, and, and it, it's... Uh, it's damaging to those economies. It's damaging to what has, what the fabric of that uh, country is. And I, 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 you know, my thing is that at least I have to say something. At least I have to. You can't make, stay uh, silent. Yeah. But th- that's really interesting. So it sounds like for you said it for you. You feel it, but you also said it for the morale of the franchisees, your employees. And you say, I can't stay silent. You know, for decades, CEOs had stayed silent because there was too much risk they felt associated with speaking out on social issues. Um, All of your employees never feel the same way. They don't all have the same politics. They don't all have the same views on these issues. But something has changed in the last five years I've seen from CEOs all the way up to the biggest companies in America that, that now agree with you and say, we cannot stay silent. Because we're global. You know, if we're leading the world, uh, then, you know, we're, we're hiring people from all over the world. We have stores all over the world. This brand is represented. My, my city that I was born in, it's a tiny city in Pakistan. When you're driving into the city, the first place, the restaurant you see is McDonald's there. It's uh, 200,000 people. And, uh, you know, and, and that, that's America. I mean, that's where people go to experience America. And we're global. I mean, we're all over the world. When we go to some of these other countries, when they hear this stuff and see this stuff, they get concerned to see what's happening. And they start to tell you, hey, I'm going to be applying for a visa to come there for training. Uh, should I be concerned? You mm. think I'll get it? Mm. And you're like, no, you know, don't mm. worry about it. It's, it's, not, uh, um, it's not as bad as you hear. And because people start to think it's really bad and, you know, and, and they start to look from the outside and get worried. More from my interview with Tariq Farid after the break. Have you been to the White House? I haven't. Have you been invited to the White House? Um, uh, uh, no. So if you were, the, the pre- President Trump has a lot of CEOs come to the White House and sit with him. What would you say? What would be your one sort of ask of this administration on this front? That we're a diverse country, and if we're looking at immigrants the contribution has been amazing both ways, you know. And I don't think any immigrant, my parents never forgot it. They still, my father makes sure I still don't forget what this country has done for us. And I think, um, look at the greatness mm. of the country where, you know, and, uh, and from there, um, let's, let's lead, uh, you know, because the world is changing, you know, and as the world is changing, we can continue to lead and, and you know, uh, uh, there's so much good to be done that we should focus on the good uh, instead of the negativity. You felt welcomed here, very welcomed, as a 13-year-old from Pakistan in the in the 80s. Do you feel as welcome here today? Uh, uh, yes, I, I, no, I'll, I'll be honest. I, I have not faced any issues. Mm-hmm. I have very diverse background of franchisees. I think people have views. They're very, str- they feel yeah. very strongly about their views. But that again is the strength of this country, where you can have those views and 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 voice them. During the Obama administration, you know, you said, look, uh, one thing that 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 administration missed out on was, in your words, not having small business people at the table. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell me why. And is it being done more effectively now? No. Look, I, I, I think major corporations, major companies that have a lot of money 
are really being taken care of, and there's a major disadvantage to f- small businesses. Small business owners right now, they work very hard. You know, they, uh, they don't get the rescues, they don't get the, the benefits, they don't get the, pref- you know, the preference where people are fighting over. No, no one's fighting over a small business to open its doors in their town. Mm, they're trying to attract these- tax breaks. Yeah, they don't get any tax breaks. And, and there's no sophistication to get those tax breaks. So I think, uh, you know, and, and, but there's more small businesses. There are little diners in, in towns that are employing five or six people or 10 people. Uh, our franchise system is all made of small business owners. We're like these Lego pieces that make up edible arrangements that we have 900 owners that own all these stores and they all employ you know, between five to 10 people. Uh, and they, they never sit there and say, well, I'll open in East Haven if I get a tax break. They just want to open their store. But so what could be different? I hear you. I mean, the argument makes a lot of sense. What could, what could a tangible change be that would make it easier on, on them? I think just the recognition, you know, one, the recognition. Second, making the playing field a little leveled, right? So I think if you're going to give all these tax breaks and if you're going to give all these benefits to these big companies, uh, that one day will pick up their rag and, and move on. And or some, some of them are taking the money from one state and, and bringing the profits to another state, where these, a lot of these small businesses are owners from that town, working in that town, employing people from that town so, and keeping the money there. So a city could say or a state could say, we're giving X you know, tax rate to, to big X Fortune 100 corporation, then the right would exist for that same percentage tax break for a small business coming into that town during a certain span of years. Yeah, why should I subsidize a hmm. small company uh, out of my property taxes or out of my state income tax? It, it should be fair. And, and just because we don't have the lobbying power, just because we don't have the, the sophistication doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't get those benefits. And, and you hear some of these things, and um, I, I think it's very unfair, especially in a, in a country where we're talking about jobs, we're talking about creating wealth, how about wealth for the little guy? Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about income inequality, the opportunity gap, the income gap in America. You're passionate about philanthropy giving back. You've been extraordinarily successful financially. You have the Tariq Freed Foundation, Edible Cares. Mm-hmm. What is the onus on corporate America today to help narrow the income divide and the opportunity gap? So I, I, I've always had a simple rule, which is that you have to take care of your community and your customer if you want to be a healthy company. So you have to look out of what you're doing, be it uh, you know, taking care of local organizations, taking care of causes that are close mm-hmm. to you, uh, and then when, you know, my mother used to say that, honey, never forget where you come from, uh, that, you know, one day, you, you know, you had nothing. And if you were successful, make sure you look back and, and you take care of the community that built you and take care of the neighborhood and, and always remember how tough it was. Mm. And so it, it's tough for some people. It's really tough out there. And, you know, I don't know how these small business owners do it. I mean, they fight every day where taxes get, they don't have a lobby to try to, you know, prevent some taxes or prevent some things. So, I, you know, I think... I think uh, uh, the people have to look out for it. I think the representatives have to look out for it. The government have to look out for that. What about and I've you guys? What about business? I mean, what's the onus on, on business? Is it, is it wages? Because you, you fa- I would assume that push and pull on wages. You see this, the fight for 15, the minimum wage debate now. You've also got these franchisees who say, I can only afford X per hour for these folks, or I'm not. Like, where do you fall on that? Where does big business stand in terms of... of, of more so, opportunity for more folks. Look, I, I think 
you know, wages should be fair. Everybody should get a fair wage. But at the same time, just simply to ask a small business owner that you have to do it, or we're, we're a franchise company, so to ask the franchisees that you have to pay more without realizing all the other costs that are associated in running the business. And it's not easy. I mean, financing hasn't been easy for franchisees, small business owners to get and everything. So I, I think, uh, you know, that, that it, like I said, um, I think you need to get some people together and, and at least have small business owners at the table and, uh, as well. And listen, not just make policy with, uh, uh, without having at least the feedback from be it the franchise industry or the small business owners in that city, in that state. What is a, what is a living wage in your mind, knowing that it varies very much uh, from New York City to Des Moines, Iowa? That's right. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't tell you. You know, you know, we, we, you know, we, we know what we pay, and there's a range. Um, you know, we pay all we, we pay above the minimum wage, the state and we minimum, have to the yeah, state, minimum the state wage. or the federal. You know, so we have to pay. Um, above well, the, the federal minimum. is only seven twenty-five an hour, but yeah, the state. I mean, in most of the states. Um, but um, you know, I, I think each business. You know, for a small business owner, affordability is a very important thing. You know, it, when when we're asking a small business owner to raise something, mm-hmm. they ha- they have to dig it out of their pocket. They can't just simply go raise prices because it's an effect on the consumer as well. So, what would help them the most? Let's say, call it fifteen dollars an mm-hmm. hour, right? Okay, that there there some argue that some argue ten ten an hour is what President Obama is pushing for. There's twelve dollars an hour. Let's let's call it if it is fifteen dollars an hour in a in a in a big city, for example, like here in New York City then how could the federal government help in your mind those small businesses so they can afford that? Would it be more tax breaks for them so they don't have to raise prices? So I I think one is tax breaks. Um, Second, I think uh, just the opportunity of business, you know, is just making it easier uh, where, um, uh, you know, sometimes, um, you know, know, it's very onerous on some of the uh, the businesses or to start something. It's, It's, okay. So I think right now, it's much more difficult to do a small business than it was a long time ago. Between you know all the advertising that you have to do, Google AdWords or, or uh, not even AdWords now, search engine and the things that you pay for and all the skills you need to run a small business, and then you're competing with these major corporations that are almost getting do, doing it for free or have tons of money. So I think one running the business is hard enough. Then you know you have a minimum wage that you want, and you want to look. I, I don't know any small business that does not want to take care of its employees. Uh, everyone wants to, and and for them it's not numbers. For them it's not, uh, you know, we need ten uh, ten employees at this and keep them part time. These are neighbors. You know, these are people that that are in like we have small. You know, when we were a small business owner, and, and I had a small business, uh, I had stores. Uh, you knew everyone. You knew their family. You, you know, you knew what what their expenses were. You know the challenges they were going through. I know my franchisees know every one of their employees and want to take care of them. So to think that those they don't want to pay more if they could, a lot of times it's, it's not as easy as saying that you need to pay this much. There there has to be a, a not only an environment, but there has to be an opportunity of easing some of the burden when it comes to like you said taxes, uh, the burden of of some of the regulatory challenges in certain of the industries, uh, and then. Um, just uh, you know the um, the challenges of uh, um, um, just the training. I think the biggest challenge we face is just the training or or what we have to do to try to bring in some talent, uh, where you have to pay a lot more. And small business just it can't compete at that with the big major corporations. One thing before we, I want to talk a little bit about your family sure. uh, as as we wrap up. But one thing before that, um, there's a big debate in this country now over paid 
family leave, mm -hmm. paid parental leave for new mothers, new fathers, paid leave to take care of a sick parent. I'd assume those hourly employees at your fran franchises, they don't get three months paid off by the corporation right now, right? That's just not how it works at any, at any franchise for the most part. Uh, what do you think? I mean, should the government be funding this so that those employees get it? Because, it, I mean, frankly, Tariq, I, I, you know, it's not us who need it, and we get it, right? We work for big corporations. I work for a big corporation. I get it. I get three months paid off when I have a time off when I have a child. It's those hourly workers that really can't afford to take that time off if it's not paid. What is the role, is there a role of government to, to pay for that, to make paid leave government funded? Uh, look, I, I will let the policymakers and people who are responsible for that to decide. But I will tell you, when I was a small business owner, I couldn't afford to do that. So, you know, and uh, we do it now. You know, we, we have benefits now. But to ask small business owners, to ask our franchisees, um, they, they couldn't. And the, the, back then, you even lacked the sophistication of how to structure that or how to pull some of these things together. Um, but what should the role of government be? I, I, we have to take care of our people. You know, we, we have to turn around and provide uh, benefits where they're needed. We, you know, we can't just simply turn around and, and ignore that. If I'm saying we have to take care of our community, take care of our customer, we have to take care of our people. You know, and, and we spend a lot of money on other stuff. But if you're not taking care of your people, then, you know, what good is that money? So I think there are a lot of neighborhoods, there are a lot of cities, there are a lot of areas where there are a lot of challenges. People are going through difficulty and we have to provide benefits. What have you sacrificed personally for all of this success? Um, I, you know, look, with the success I've had, I, I would be disingenuous if I said if I sacrificed something. You know, I, I worked hard. Uh, I think what you end up, you know, and I've said this before, what you end up sacrificing that I wish I could do it, or I could have done it differently, was probably more time with my kids. You know, I had to be on the road a lot. And if you haven't financed or gotten taken on debt and grew the company organically, you're, of course, you go through those financial challenges. And with that, you're going to work very hard. Uh, I didn't mind hard work. I don't mind hard work now. But you look back and you miss some of those years, those special you years do. with your kids. And I think that's probably the thing that I wish I did differently. And then, uh, as my mom, my mom passed away in 2005, and I wish I had spent more time with her. You do. Yeah. So you sort of have, you have, you have six kids, three of your kids are older, like college age and out, and then you've got a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a 10-year-old. That's right. So you sort of have a second shot at that. Are you I, are you doing it a little bit differently this this round with kids? A little uh, bit more I, time, a little less travel. I mean, luckily, my oldest is working with me, so I get to spend a lot of time with her. Yeah. Probably more time than she wants to spend, uh, and I get to spend a lot of time with uh, younger kids now. So uh, um, I, I I take time out, but I. Um, I am a bit of a workaholic. I enjoy work. I enjoy building companies. So there is a, I, there, you always wish there's more. And I think everybody complains about that. I struggle with this all the time. Yeah, so everybody wishes that they could do yeah. more. And, uh, and we have to, they grow up fast. So we, we're gonna, we, we have to take advantage of it as much as possible. You have said that you wanted your kids to work at McDonald's no matter, no matter how wealthy your family yeah, got. Yeah. You wanted them to work at McDonald's. Have they so far? My daughters haven't, but I'll hopefully get the boys in there, you know, so, uh, or at least get them into a franchise, get them into a small business. I want them to work Why in a small business. Why not the girls too? Well, girls have worked at the edible arrangement stores. 
so they worked in a franchise. They haven't worked at McDonald's because uh, uh, we were just, uh, we pull them into our own businesses. Uh, but I want them to experience how, how it is to own a small business and to appreciate what small business owners do and to appreciate what we have done to get to where we are. And we started out with a, a store on Main and Hemingway, a small 1,200 square foot store. Is it still there? It's still there, yeah. yeah it's down the street now, but uh, those stores are still there and I want them to experience that. Finally, you said your mother died in 2005, and clearly, you've mentioned her so many times in this in our in our conversation. Clearly, she had such an impact on you. Um, you have said that you wish that she could have seen you now. You could have seen the success. What do you think she would say? Oh. Um, my mom was the first one to give me a loan. She used to save up fifty dollars uh, a week. And she gave me my first forty thousand to buy the first building where the edible arrangements headquarters were, and um, and and she knew it would be big. But even when we had two stores, she thought it was big. You know, she was just very proud at that time. Um, and I just um, I just wish she because a lot of these things that are happening now were planted by her, right? I mean, I'm I'm here because of her. So I think uh, uh, there there is a. Um, th- there's a moment you sit back, and that's why I reflect on it so much, that you wish she was here because she did a lot of work and a lot of hard work to get us to where we are, uh, from the motivation to kind of waking you up in the morning and kicking you out of the house to say, go, go, you know, go do this. Um, so, uh, you know, I think she, one, would be very, very proud. My mother was uh, very big on sharing with other people the articles or things to say, look what my son is doing. And, <laughs> and uh, so I think uh, she would be very happy that for someone who was the daughter of a refugee, that when India and Pakistan split, came here and you know, thought life really started, that what she was able to have her kids accomplish, I think uh, she would be over the moon. She would, no question. Congratulations on the success. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.